Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast with Steve Gordon. Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gordon, and today I'm really excited, folks. We've got a great interview lined up for you. I've got a very special guest with me today. Today we're talking with Rich Sheffron, founder and president of Strategic Profits. He is the guru to the gurus. He's personally added over $15 billion of additional revenue to his clients over the course of many, many years. He's been featured on media outlets like the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, ABC, NBC, Fox, MSNBC, and frankly, folks, just about everywhere else you can think of. Uh, he's been around in uh, the marketing game and in internet marketing, especially for a long time and uh, influenced a lot of the thinking that goes on in internet marketing. So I'm really excited to have him here today. Rich, welcome to The Unstoppable CEO. Excited to be here, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Fill us in a little bit. Um, you've been doing this for a while. You've innovated a lot of stuff in internet marketing and in marketing in general, but kind of give us the the trajectory of your career. How'd you get to this stage? Uh, well, I guess the quick version of the long story is that um, I studied accounting in college and uh, actually uh, worked for Arthur Anderson for a little while in Anderson Consulting, uh, now known as Accenture. And uh, that then I uh, took over a family business that was failing. Uh, it was a clothing store uh, in Manhattan, and I turned it around and turned it into a, one of the hottest clothing stores in Manhattan. And from there, uh, we were the first store to bring brands like Diesel into the United States and uh, first store to have a DJ in it. And then we sold the music so well from the DJs that were spinning in the store that then we built a recording studio in the store and that was when electronic music became really popular and so uh we were we had worldwide distribution and then after a couple of years of that i decided i didn't want to be in a family business so i gave the business back to my family and um took a year off got hypnotized really enjoyed that uh, so I decided that was going to be my next business. I opened up a hypnosis center that grew into a chain of hypnosis centers. That's where I learned direct response because all the advertising and marketing I had done in music and uh, fashion had been more slick and uh, institutional as opposed to direct response. And uh, so when I first got into the hypnosis business and we were running ads, the, the more I liked the ad, the slicker it looked, the nicer it looked, the worse it did, the cheesier it was, the more embarrassing it was, the more I wanted to hide it, the better it did. And so I got really fascinated by that and uh, started learning direct response. And that put me in touch with a lot of like the legends of direct response from Jay Abraham to Gary Halpert and those guys. And uh, then 9-11 happened. All my hypnosis centers were in Manhattan. Um, and that really, we were, we went from zero to 13 and a half million in the first four years. And in our fourth year was 9-11. And um, we lost our phone lines. I had never had a failing business before. So I thought I was invincible, made some stupid mistakes and um, ended up having to sell off the business eventually. But, um, but during that time, I was, it was tough because I had 60 full-time hypnotists on staff and making payroll every two weeks was a grind. And so when I finally sold off the business and everything, I, um, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, uh, I was in love with direct response. I was in love with the idea of maybe not having employees after killing myself every two weeks to make payroll. So I bought into the idea that, uh, I could like 
like a business opportunity really like that i could be checking my uh profits from the beach for a half an hour a day on my laptop and um pursued that for about two years online and made very little progress and really was kind of very um self-critical i guess wondering why was i now failing when i had had all these successes before and uh it occurred to me one night when i was writing my journal that i was treating this business very different than all the other businesses i had been in before and maybe maybe this business wasn't so different maybe this was like every other business i've run and when i started making those changes i started doing a lot better and uh one thing led to another as in regarding that i ended up things got better than i wanted to share what i had learned with a bunch of people and i did and did a bunch of programs with jay abraham uh coaching programs and things like that then eventually i started doing my own coaching and uh i guess that's what really made me well known um i was coaching a lot of people who became gurus uh, and i did a coaching program and i coached like an original group of people first i coached 25 people um to see if i liked it see if i wanted to do it and i did like it then i coached like another 30 people and the programs were all ending at the same time and i had like a three-month uh, window before I had this project with Agora uh, publishing. And so I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing for the next three months to make money. And I didn't like the idea of not making money because I had all these coaching clients who were on a monthly program that were paying me and now it was over. And uh, so I decided to do a 11 week program. My normal coaching program was over a year and decided that, you know, I'd write a free report and hopefully I'd get like 10 or 12 clients from it. And uh, I wrote that report and that report went viral. I ended up getting thousands of clients from it. And I guess that's what kind of put me on the map. And then when people found out that like I had coached, you know, Ryan Dice, Todd Brown, Russell Brunson, ClickFunnels, um, One Shopping Cart, Mike Filsane, Jeff Walker, like all these people, then I got kind of known as the guru to the gurus. And um, I guess my life has never been the same since. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how and I ended up what, here. What was the... What was the report that you wrote? Uh, the Internet Business Manifesto. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of folks have seen that. Yeah. I think I've got a copy <laughs> buried somewhere on my hard drive. Yeah, so it was downloaded over uh, 2 million times by 2012, and then we stopped trying to track it. So uh, definitely the most successful <laughs> thing I've ever written. Um, but then I wrote a series of like seven more reports after that because, hey, why not? And that really built my whole business. And then in 2008, we invented the automated webinar and uh, that changed my business pretty crazily. Uh, I wrote a report in 2007 for my clients saying that automated webinars would be the next big thing and that they should get on it. And um, then in 2012, I decided to semi-retire. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next and uh, also went through a little bit of a midlife crisis. And then about two years ago, I decided I wanted to be back in this market. And uh, so now I am. It's quite a journey. So, you know, in all of that, you you mentioned a, a couple of, of times where things weren't necessarily as, as easy yeah. as maybe you hoped or expected they would be. When you've run into those sorts of things, what keeps you persistent? What keeps you going and pushing through? Well, I think, you know, I would say first and foremost, probably self-knowledge. Um, and there's more to unpack with that. So let me explain what I mean. Um, I've never really had a motivation problem uh, until I did. <laughs> and uh, and 
what I discovered about myself was, is that I'm a very, and I don't like this about myself per se, but it is what it is. Uh, I'm a very away from type person. Um, so I was always motivated because I didn't want to fail. Uh, I was motivated to make money because I was afraid I wasn't going to have any money. I work out every morning, not to look fit. I work out every morning so I don't get fat. Right. Like that's my mindset. Right. Cause I was fat as a kid and there have been times when I had no money. Right. So I'm very much like an away from type person. And part of my midlife crisis was I had reached all the goals that I had set for myself. You know, they weren't, I didn't have goals to be the president of the United States or anything like that. Just like, but you know, the financial goals I had and everything else, I, I felt like I had hit it. And I found myself like with no motivation and I didn't understand why at all for quite a long time. But in hindsight now, what I understand was, is that like the risk had been, the risk was gone now. Like, like if I didn't work, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I'd still have money tomorrow. Like, and, and next month and next year. And, and so now all of a sudden, what was primarily motivating me in the past was now absent. And that really, yeah, it, it, it wasn't so obvious. Like I said, like, as I was struggling through this, it was not obvious. None of this was obvious to me. It's now obvious in hindsight. Um, and so like, what was the point of going after goals when like, it seemed like when I accomplished a goal, yeah, it was exciting for a week or two. And then, you know, life goes back to the way it was before. So then I thought, like, maybe I'd have no goals and see how that would work. That did not work at all. Um, <laughs> um, but then I realized that I am most happy when I'm in pursuit of something, in pursuit of anything. Like, if there's something I'm on the prowl for, you know, something I want, uh, that I feel alive going after it. And so, what for me then thinking about all this i was like okay so the purpose of a goal really is not to achieve the goal because when you achieve the goal like you're happy for a week or two purpose of a goal is just to provide direction and then if that's the case it's to provide direction and motivation and if it doesn't provide motivation then it's not a good goal period like doesn't matter and it's interesting like because like as i started to kind of think about it from that perspective um I've had clients that I've worked with who, you know, maybe the goal was to have, let's say, a a two million dollar business, right? Like that, and uh, and the, in, the, in this particular person's business, this was applicable. That wasn't motivating to this person, but the idea of making, um, you know, ten grand a day like business business is was exciting like the idea that like each day when he, when he hit the 10 grand mark he could call it a day and that would be the end of the day like that was for him much more motivating than 2 million dollars at the end of the year right like that it was kind of arbitrary and not very concrete whereas in a day to day like you know that number uh was for him and so nowadays i kind of think about it like when i hit times when i'm not like itching to go and you know and i'm fighting against myself to take action i generally take a look at the goals that i'm trying to achieve that day um or you know the current project i'm working on and, and start reevaluating and seeing how can i make this 
something more exciting to be done. Um, and uh, so that's part of it. And then uh, other parts of it are, I would say that, um, I'd say two other quick things. Um, one is, is that, and you know, we could have a whole long conversation about this. So I, I just throw it out there because I believe in it. Is I, I think it's so important. But um, most entrepreneurs don't design their business around who they current, who they really are. They design it around who they want to be, and that's problematic. As someone who is somewhat of a flawed individual, I procrastinate. I'm a perfectionist. I've got a lot of issues. Um, but I designed my business so I could be successful based on who I currently am, that person, that procrastinator, that perfectionist, as opposed to thinking that I'm somehow magically going to get over these personal uh, flaws and be the ideal person running my business and then now not have a good business and not be able to change, um, building the business around who I really am. And, and then also working with intensity, I guess, would be the last thing I would say. And what I mean by that is trying to do my best to work under pressure, um, whether that's timed pressure, whether that's only a limited amount of time in the office, whether it's only a amount of limited time on something, um, because because of who I am and left my own devices, I would just keep working on something until the minute I have to hand it in, right? Like until like it's never finished. Um, and that's one of my flaws. And that's, you know, like that's, I kind of have built my business around my flaws and my goals need to motivate me in the moment or they're not good goals. Well, I think that's that's a huge piece of wisdom right there. I think a lot of folks, you know, they get into business, they've got a mentor or somebody that gives them an example of this is how you need to structure it, this is how you need to behave as an entrepreneur and we're all a little bit different. Um I can totally relate to needing to set a if I don't have a deadline for I, in fact, I need the deadline usually just to get started. Yeah. You know, I need the deadline with severe consequences, public humiliation. Yes. Like a deadline in and of itself is means nothing. It has to be, there has to be some serious consequence. Exactly. And, uh, and so knowing that about myself, I, like you, I be, I have now begun to be really aware of that and structure things. So I think that's a huge bit of wisdom and I appreciate you sharing that. I'm, I'm really curious about this idea of away from versus kind of, you know, drawn to some goal. I see people get caught in this a lot. And you talked about the fact that you're sort of this, you know, you're driven by moving away from things uh, or were in the past. Has that changed for you after this transition that you went through? Yes, I'm definitely more forward, uh, but I, not as much as I'd like to be. That's for sure. And I think, you know, I think, you know, it's why I think it's uh, people fall on a spectrum. Right. And I think I was just far on the spectrum. Now, maybe I'm a little bit more normal. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, especially my weight is something that I've struggled with my whole life more than my finances. Right. Um, and uh, and I've been fat and I've been fit. And uh, but I really I do not work out to be fit. I really the only reason I work out is because I've been 250. I did not like being 250, you know, with my legs rubbing together and my you know, 44 inch waist and a 30 inseam. It's, you know, um, so yeah, it, like that. And I still like in that, in that part, uh, I still am, uh, more away from on the positive side, I guess I just try and dream a little bit bigger. Uh, and sometimes that can pull me forward. Um, or I try and think of smaller things in that bigger thing that could draw me forward, if that makes sense. 
like specific things that are powerful enough for me to really look forward to. But yeah, but I don't, I'm kind of a more flat person. I, so that even that is, uh, you know, I say it, but, uh, it's not, it, it, yeah, I would, I would say I'm probably where most people are naturally. And and I've had to work a lot to get to there. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, Hey, let's, let's take a quick break. I want to pause and I want to come back and I want to talk a little bit about marketing and I want to talk about an event you've got coming up. Um, and I think folks would be interested in, uh, hearing your take on both those topics. So we'll be right back with more from Rich Sheffron. Hi, this is Steve. I hope you're enjoying this interview. We've got more to come in a minute, but what I'd love for you to do right now is rate this podcast. Leave us a review, rate us on iTunes. It'll really help others discover the podcast and help us help other CEOs, other business leaders become unstoppable. So if you go to unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes, you can find instructions there and links that will take you right to where you need to go to review the podcast. Thanks so much. Now back to the interview. Welcome back, everybody. This is Steve Gordon. I'm here with Rich Sheffron. And Rich, um, you have, uh, you've done an awful lot over the years in marketing. You've innovated a lot of things. You said something earlier in the interview that I want to actually come back to because I think it'll be instructive sure. for a lot of people. You said when you got into direct response, you had been in, you, in, in the clothing business and you did you know, kind of the, the glossy, more institutional mm-hmm. type of marketing. And then you got into direct response. And, and I think the, the way you phrased it was you said, the uglier the, it was, the more embarrassed I was to put it out there, the better it worked. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that shift and how it changed your thinking and, and, and maybe how it surprised you. Well, it certainly surprised me. And it really was, I couldn't believe that the uglier it was, the better it uh, did. And that, um, but it also made sense to me from a standpoint that people don't buy newspapers to really look at the ads. They might buy magazines to look at the ads, but not necessarily newspapers. And um, and so editorial style beat any other style because it looked like the paper. People buy the newspaper to read the stories. So, um, so there was that. That kind of made sense to me. Um, the idea that the – I think what got me most excited about it, though, more than anything else was uh how how it was all numbers and you could measure it and being an accountant as my background i guess just made that really appealing to me the idea that i could consistently compete against myself improve uh you know with split testing and stuff like that we did a lot of split testing with the newspapers um that was what was really appealing to me. And then it was also a challenge because as I was, you know, I've learned so much about the brain through learning hypnosis and NLP and all those things. uh, You know, I felt like I should be able to do this and do this well. But what I would say is, is that um, where marketing is today online is kind of a combination of both um, that, and I don't see as many people really leveraging it as well as they could, that there is the ability now to brand to a small group with, you know, like Facebook advertising, where you're just advertising for the view, not for anything else. Um, And then um, 
building a brand, you know, effect to a small community and then direct response to follow up on those. Um, so now it's trying to make the sale, but you're already known. And I think that what confuses a lot of people about marketing in general is, is that they don't really operate from a good definition of like what it is and how to do it. So, you know, what I, and there's a gazillion definitions. I don't pretend that mine's the only definition. You know, I once wanted to see if there was a definition. And uh, I found a blog post that had 70 different experts in marketing giving their definition of marketing. So there were 70 different, <laughs> there were 70 different <laughs> definitions, which means that there is no definition. Um, my definition of marketing is helping prospects value what it is you offer, right? It's helping them value what you offer. And, you know, when I talk to business owners, I'm like, look, I assume you sell your product because you believe in it and that it's not the other way around that you believe in it because you sell it. If you believe in it, right? If you sell it because you believe in it, like something occurred to you that you believe in the product before you started selling it um, and your prospects don't, right? Because they wouldn't be prospects, they'd be customers. Um, then you've had experiences that they haven't had that have led you to that conclusion. And part of marketing is to figure out how can you get someone to that same conclusion that you came to um, in a faster, you know, more uh, designed way than the haphazard way. But everything that I've ever sold into the market was something that I was convinced um, was something that people would benefit greatly from, right? So now my job of marketing is helping them value that and helping them see where that fits in their life and what that would do for them. And so marketing becomes a lot more simple if you put the technology aside for, you know, for the, at least in the beginning and just really mentally kind of understand what we're trying to do. We're trying to get a group of people uh, generally to alter a belief or two um, if we're trying to create demand uh, of how to get a specific outcome uh, and we want them to see your product through it. And so your understanding of how you were convinced that this was a great product or how other customers of yours have been convinced is really the, like, the, the best information you need um, to begin to replicate that process, you know, online or offline, but, you know, especially online. What changed, and that was what I did with the Internet Business Manifesto. I didn't know it at the time. I was just writing a report. And, but what I wrote was a report of things that I knew that if you knew, you would have more appreciation for understanding business. So, you know, I look at a market as a group of people that share a conflict, right? That's all a market is. It's a group of people that all have the same conflict. That conflict could be negative, like it's a problem that I've been unable to get rid of, or it could be positive, like it's a goal I haven't been able to achieve. But for whatever reason, there's a conflict because it wouldn't be in the market if the, you know, if someone's business is running on all cylinders and their employees are great and they're hanging out in the Caribbean, they ain't reading a book on how to grow their business. Like they don't need it. Right. And so they're not downloading a manifesto or whatever. So I'm talking to a group of people who have had a conflict and they've been unable to resolve it because I assume that most people didn't join the market yesterday. So my job is as a marketer is to one get them to know that i appreciate and understand their conflict that i understand them because most people walk around feeling totally misunderstood and the first uh, objection that most prospects will have to anything is this doesn't apply to me 
um, we reject stuff all the time, right? Like uh, Dan Kennedy um, used to, a uh, direct response legend, uh, he used to have the sign in the back of his uh, seminar room that said, my business is different, right? Because we all think that our situation is different. And so we will continue to think that and your prospects think that unless you do something that makes them feel understood. And so that's what I'm suggesting, right? That uh, part of marketing is to let them know that you know what their conflict is and what the burden of that conflict is and the price they're paying for it. And then why is the uh, why is your solution superior to any other solution out there? And it should be, right? Because if it isn't, then your strategy is to find stupid people to be customers, which, you know, I, there's plenty of them out there, but I just don't know that that's a great strategy. Um, so that's kind of the thought process. You know, why is your product the thing that people need? And what can you do to lead people to that revelation? So I write reports that give people revelations then I will explain it. But my goal is to get them to think it before I explain it, if I can. Uh, the big idea that when they have it, they automatically realize the need for my product. So that's kind of how I market. And, and online today, like the number of options for marketing are, you know, almost infinite. And so no one is going to do everything online. Uh, it's kind of impossible to do all marketing online. Uh, you pick your spots and you pick your spots based on who you're talking to, the message that you have to deliver and what your strength is. So for me, um, I'm a better writer than I am person on video. Uh, so, you know, my, a lot of my marketing ends up being reports and things like that. Um, but uh, if I was much more charismatic and much more comfortable on video, I would do it all on video. Be easier, faster. Um, but it's much less the mechanisms as it is the message. And, uh, and it's always been that way. And I think that sometimes people lose focus on that. They get excited about something as opposed, they get excited by the what, not so much the how, I guess, you know, um, they, uh, they get interested in the details of stuff that they probably don't have, they shouldn't be spending so much time on. Well, you know, I think, um, I think it's easy to, to get distracted by sure. the questions of, you know, should I be on Facebook or should I, you know, be running, you know, LinkedIn ads or doing a podcast or whatever. It's fun to kind of contemplate the new tool and toy and not actually sit and do the really difficult work, which is, is thinking through all the things you just described, understanding who that market is, what's the conflict that they have. And what experience do they need to understand that that what you're offering is the right solution? I think that's that's the really challenging work that uh, you know it's it's fun to get distracted and go play with some tools. Yeah, I guess I could see that. I mean, I enjoy the like the, that thinking, but I could see how that's that's definitely more taxing than playing with the next shiny object for sure. But you know, it's like there's two things that like to say to that. One is is that I just don't think most people uh, make enough time for something great. Right. Like the web has a tendency of making people think that they need to do like everything and or do a lot. And it's like, you know, are you going to like writing a blog post every day? OK, you can write a blog post every day. But like, are any of those blog posts going to be 
absolutely amazing? Like, did you invest enough time, energy, and effort? Like, as someone who's, you know, most of my success has come from passed along content, and that content that's been passed along has been some of my best content, you know, not content that I, you know, banged out in a day. Um, so, I, I, one, I think most people think it's so important to be everywhere that they are everywhere with media, mediocrity. Um, and the way that I'm, the way I find people is I read something and I'm like, holy crap, this is amazing. I want more like, you know, that's what gets me every time. Um, so I think there's, yeah, most people don't make enough time for greatness. And then most people think they have to redefine, you know, reinvent the wheel every time they go to a different platform. Like I wrote the manifesto and it sold a lot of my business growth system. But then after that, like when we first started doing webinars, the webinar was just the manifesto repackaged. Like it wasn't a new message. I had a message that when it was exposed, when people were exposed to it, they were worth a lot more money to me after being exposed to it. So my goal then is to expose it in any different medium that I can. You know, if YouTube was around when I released the manifesto, there would have been a YouTube video for it too. Like it, like once you have a winning message, then you've populated everywhere until you have a winning message. You know, you, you probably should kind of work on that, that message. Um, you know, and, uh, cause you don't have to be on every platform in the beginning. You know, you, you just need to master one and then you have to quickly become less reliant on one, but, uh, doing too much too soon is a problem for a lot of people online for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I know you've got an event, uh, coming yeah. up and, um, when, when folks listen to this episode, I think it'll be less than a week away. So tell us a little bit about this event. It's, um, uh, kind of a who's who of marketing. So I'm excited. For yeah. That. So, um, so what happened was I, you know, so I've worked with, um, Agora publishing for about, um, 15, 16 years now. Um, and I uh, started working with, with them when they were about a hundred. $200 million company. We're now a $1.8 billion company. And I have a uh, billion dollar testimonial from the founder. Um, I helped them grow by over a billion dollars uh, back like 10 years ago. And uh, so I've always been very close with Agora. And uh, uh, been, they, they started having problems with some of the big platforms like Facebook and Google about two years ago and approached me because they were concerned about it and they had tried to buy my business many times in the past and i wasn't interested um while i was running the business but i'd taken the last five years off i was just you know working with some clients but not any real like out there public stuff except maybe a couple presentations at seminars but you know i wasn't day-to-day -day running of any business and um so they offered to buy part of my business if i would come in and help them and then we would relaunch the business too so that's what i did um, I came back, I came into Agora and then I started looking at AI and data. And when I first started looking at AI and data, I thought that would be the solution. The challenge is it could be possibly some of the solution for Agora because, you know, that 1.8 billion is all online, uh, you know, and we track everything. So we have great data, but, but the average small business has no data. They don't even have the data in their advertising accounts because they sit on the platforms. And, um, and so when AI gets here, they're not going to have any data to power AI, which is problematic, um, very problematic. Um, so the next thing to think about, though, was how do we make the businesses much less reliant on any platform and make us much more anti-fragile, right? Like, uh, you know, sustainable. And in order to do that, I 
you know, I'm a strategist and a generalist, but I'm not an expert. And I got, you know, you wouldn't want me to run your Facebook ad campaign you know, or your AdWords campaign. Uh, you, I would be the guy that would tell you, you need to do that. But then that, that's where mine kind of stops. Um, so I reached out to all the world's top experts in every field, whether it's native advertising, SEO, uh, affiliate marketing, content marketing, um, native advertising, you know, you name it, copywriting, et cetera, um, to put together a brain trust of uh, really the world's best, the world's best from a standpoint of people I respect, people who've come up with the models that we use today, uh, and people who I believe are working on the models that we'll use tomorrow. And that's important because I feel like, and I don't know, this is at least my perception. Uh, my perception is, is in the five or six years that I was absent, um, there's been a proliferation of experts. Like it seems like anyone who takes a class then becomes a coach for that thing. And now they're an expert and you know, everyone's got to start somewhere. So I don't, I don't fault them, but when you're teaching someone, like when you're teaching a business owner how to grow their business, that's a pretty serious thing because if you're selling them crap, you're not only stealing money from them, you're stealing from them their hopes and their dreams, the time away from their family studying this thing. Like it's pretty nasty. So I'm very, I'm very cognizant of like the impact that the advice that I give can have positively if it's right or negatively if it's wrong. And I kind of suffered those first two years negatively. So I know what that's like and it really sucked to the point that I thought there might be something wrong with me. Um, so I say that, um, that, you know, that is precarious, especially with what's approaching. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, not being sure who really is an expert and what advice is valid versus not in a time where the environment will become more inhospitable is a bad thing. And what I mean by inhospitable is, is that most people are unaware of big tech's impact on small business online. And there's a lot of things that are being changed. And those in the know see it, but most people are not aware. So about three months ago, uh, Google surpassed uh, the 50% mark of now, now when someone searches on Google, less than 50% of people leave the site. So less than 50% of people that go to Google to do a search do not leave Google. The whole purpose of a search engine, when search engines first started, I was around when that, like the agreement was we will scrape all your content and list it and people will come to our site, see that scrape content and go to your site. That was the whole reason why Google can violate everyone's copyright in the whole, everyone with a website's copyright. If they're not sending that traffic, that's a little bit of a problem. Now they're just scraping our content and they're being sued for it. Um, one lyrics company started putting in, in Morse code in their lyrics caught red handed. And then when you search for the, for the lyrics of that song, it's in Morse code, like embedded in the song, you're caught red handed. So Google got caught red handed doing that. But Facebook did the same thing back in 2012. And also I think in 14, they convinced every brand to send all their customers to Facebook because then you'd be able to communicate with them for free if they liked your page. And so everyone from McDonald's to Mercedes had ads like us on Facebook. And then two years later, Facebook is like, yeah, thanks for that. But for now on, uh, people who liked your page aren't going to see it anymore. Now it's 0.05%. That's, you know, so less than 1% of your customers will see your things. 
Amazon has 95 million households in the United States on Prime. That's more people that will vote in the election. Um, and more than half of all uh, purchase searches start on Amazon. And Amazon has been caught numerous times seeing vendors sell well on their site and then knocking them off. So, you know, you have to be there or you're saying goodbye to 50% of your business. And if you do well, they're going to take your business, right? So, you know, I assume that like I'm talking to a group of people that are around my age. When I was young, like there was no innovation in phones. We had a phone in the house. Ma Bell owned the phone company. You couldn't buy a phone. You had to rent the phone. And that was it. End of story, right? And what, until they broke up Ma Bell, there was no phone. Like you couldn't go into a store and buy a phone at Radio Shack. I don't believe there would be cell phones today if they didn't break up my bell. I don't believe that there would be Google if they didn't, or Chrome if they didn't stop Microsoft and Internet Explorer, right? Google, Amazon, and um, Facebook are all moving into a mature stage of their business. They're no longer about innovation. There has been no innovation for the last five years. And when a company moves from innovation, what they're now about is maximizing profit. And the way you maximize profit is, is that you keep all your visitors on your own site and make it, it cost prohibitive for them to leave so that it's worth your while. It's like, if I don't want to do any more consulting, I just come up with a ridiculously high price. If someone's willing to pay that high price, I'll do it. But, you know, it's kind of the same thing. And that's why Google is now has less than 50% leaving their site. That's why the cost per acquisition on every media goes up every year, even in years of recession. Because the only way these companies are going to grow now without innovation is by monopolizing more stuff, like having a bigger footprint, right? Um, Amazon wants to get into the pharmaceutical business. You know, uh, Google, you know, has already gotten into the travel business. Soon they'll be in the insurance business. Like, who knows what else, right? Like, but they're not stopping. And they've been, and they break the law all the time too. And they get away with it, right? So whether it's Google buying all of MasterCard's data, looking at all of our MasterCard purchases without our permission um, and getting fined for that, or whether it's Google getting fined because they had a, a non-hire agreement with Apple. Apple and Google had an agreement that they wouldn't steal each other's employees so that like employees couldn't be bid up. $500 million fine for that. Like these companies are evil and they're not, they're not good for entrepreneurs. And right now, because of fake news, they're also um, favoring big brands. So small businesses have to pay more just because we're not known. And, uh, you know, don't know if most people know this, but you can't mention Facebook in a Facebook ad. If I want to say something negative about Facebook, can't happen. Like that's just not allowed, right? And if you're small and you get kicked out of these platforms, you'll never get anyone on the phone. If you're not big enough, they don't care, right? So you can get kicked out, you're like, it's, it's bad. So anyway, um, so these platforms have a lot of power. They need to continue to make more money and they're looking and they have all the data and they know where, you know, our, they, know, they know exactly where they need to go and what they need to do and they're not our friend. And we shouldn't be reliant on any single platform. And so what I've done is I created this, uh, I figured if I'm going to do it for Agora, I might as well do it for the market that really put me on the map that um, I helped create, but also helped create me. Um, and so I decided that if I'm going to do it for Agora, I get all these world-class experts, let's do it for the whole world. And so I did a 26-hour live stream back in 2008. 
in, during the election of uh, Obama versus McCain, and I beat John McCain that day. We had the number, we had the highest attended live stream back in 2008 in October. We had about 28,000 people show up. But that was just me alone sitting at my desk answering questions. This is me, uh, Russell Brunson of ClickFunnels, Ryan Dice of Digital Marketer, Jeff Walker, uh, uh, Nick. Uh, wait, uh, Nick Shackelford, James Von Ellswick, um, Todd Brown, um, really like one, um, there's about 35 different world-class experts um, in almost every area of online marketing. And by the time we probably go live in every area of mar online marketing, it's from February 19th at 7 p.m. till February 20th at 7 p.m. And um, when people register for it, they get um, three presentations that I gave last year in France. Uh, we own, Agora owns two. And then one of them, I taught a two-day workshop for all the publishers, international publishers. And the first three presentations were uh, 13 ways to increase conversion rates without changing a word of copy, um, 11 sneaky ways to increase cart value and email sales, and uh, VSLs, webinars, and other stealth methods of selling. So those were three presentations I gave to a very high-level group. Um, and people get those free when they register for the live stream. And they can register for the live stream at CSIB, Council for Committee to Save Internet Business, CSIB 2020. CSIB 2020. And um, they will get a... Um, they will, they will come to a page that's actually a, um, a vault. And Steve, since you have to give me a code for, so that they can type in for the vault, what would you like it to be? Uh, could be a word. Why don't could we, be a, yeah, why don't we use unstoppable? Unst that yeah, work? that works. All right, I'm gonna just tell, just gonna tell my team. So one second, uh, Steve, Morden. And that's what we're doing. And it should be great. It should be um, epic. Um, the, our goal is to just share strategies that are currently working now and strategies for people to become a lot less reliant on any big platform individually, be able to use certain strategies that leverage the platforms that they're not using now that just can make their business, like I said, more anti-fragile. Because I've dealt with God knows how many clients over the years whose businesses go through a total you know, reversal. Um, because like all of a sudden Google decides they're not, you know, they're not taking ads anymore for credit repair or, um, Facebook decides that, yeah, you can't use the word money anymore or whatever. Right. Like, so it happens quite often and you don't want to be in a position like that. And more and more people are finding themselves in a position like that. Um, a lot of, a lot of direct response marketers, I'm not one of them per se, but they have a they have a strong argument that it's not a matter of if you'll be kicked out of one of these platforms. It's just a matter of when. And the majority of people I know have lost accounts, so that would be a fair assessment. Mm. And there have been times when I've had to fight with Google to even advertise on my own name. Like they were letting other people advertise on my name. They wouldn't let me advertise on my name. So then I trademarked my name. Mm. And then uh, to get them to stop making money off my name, like, yeah, these are these these companies are not our friends. They're they you know I love their services, and as a consumer, I'm happy. But as a business owner, 
I'm extremely concerned. And I, I, and it's not just me. There's been less businesses started year after year after year for the last 10 years. There's less VC funding in any of the areas where big tech is over the last 10 years. And like I said, where's the innovation? So there's no innovation. There's not like this is these companies, the, the antitrust laws changed. I know I'm going down. I'll stop after this. <laughs> the antitrust laws changed. No, I, I actually think this is all really important for, for folks to understand. So d don't feel like you've got to okay, cool. um, edit it. I think this is, this is key. The antitrust laws changed after Microsoft. And it was um, they like uh, Judge Bork, the guy that didn't make it to the Supreme Court. Uh, he wrote a very like, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know how to really describe it. But he wrote a piece, a book, something um, that became like the the common uh, the common practice when it comes to now antitrust uh, law, and it was all about the impact to the consumer. So in order for there to be an antitrust case, there has to be a negative impact felt by the consumer as in like a higher price. The challenge though is, is that like, if you look at Amazon, like Amazon trades and, you know, I'm not a trader, so I'm just going to, I could be off by a few, but I know I'm not off by a lot. Amazon trades like 50 times its earnings price, right? It's way above average. Now, why would it be trading so far above average? Because investors assume that Amazon's going to continue to grow. And at some point, their pricing is probably not going to be that friendly to, uh, you know, to a customer. And that point is when everyone else is out of business. And by then it will be too late. Like, so... The, that's the challenge. The challenge is, is that right now, these companies are not hurting the consumer. They're hurting the producer. They will buy any, I mean, they bought Oculus, uh, Facebook bought Oculus because it had a better operating system and they just don't want that getting out, right? Like that, like these four companies or three companies I mentioned um, have had $435 billion worth of acquisitions. They buy their competitors, like, you know, and, and it just too much power and too few hands. They have too much data. Um, you know, it, Google knows more about you than anybody, period, including yourself. People tell Google what they wouldn't tell their spouse, right? We, we share with Google almost everything and they save almost everything. They even save searches where you didn't finish. Like they save your keystrokes. There are no secrets online, zero. Like I was on the other side, like on the data side and AI side, there are no secrets. You can be followed online. I can follow you. Every time that you see a retargeted ad, what do you think that is? That is them knowing what page you're on because every page you go on sends out a signal that we have this visitor ID on this page. Who is willing to pay the most to show an ad? And because retargeting usually outbids, like standard advertising, that's why you get followed. But if you understand the logic that you're seeing an ad that you saw before, then it means that they know that it's you. And they know it's you every time you go on any page, and they is anyone who has an advertising server. Because when Google does a call out and says, we have this person on this ad, what's the bid? And to have an advertising server, you have to have, be able to handle a half a million requests a second. And you have to say yes, no, and a bid price. Like there is no no answering. That's your information, and that's your information being sent out all over the fuck. Sorry, all over the world, all over the planet to servers everywhere. There is no privacy online, and these companies have it all, which is really scary. So, um, so this is a big deal. 
and um, hence we're doing quite a bit to counteract it. I believe that like people can do really well in the next 10 years, but I also think a lot of small businesses are going to go out of business that it became so easy online that like it's, you know, people are going to, it's going to get more difficult. From a high level, Mm -hmm. what, what are you advising folks to do to, to move away from this? Um, I'm sure there are a million, yeah, there's a million low level tactics, but just, I would say like uh, just a couple of things. I mean, there's, there's literally a lot, but like, I'll give you three things that I think everyone should be doing. Um, so the first thing is, is that if they do any advertising on any of the platforms, they should be downloading their data. That's first and foremost, right? Like at least once a month, um, they should be downloading their data. In addition to that, just since we're talking about data, um, you can have like, you know, in Facebook and I'm not, you know, like I said, I'm not a, uh, a media buyer, but in Facebook, you can have two like business accounts or ad managers or whatever it is. Um, the smart thing to do is that whenever you're building any kind of pixeled list is to have one of your like accounts be only for the store. Like you always, you don't do anything in it except you put extra pixels, you pixel everything that you're pixeling in your other account so that you always have an extra set of all your lists because when you lose your account, you lose your list. And you'll never lose the account that has that if you're only using that to store extra copies of your list. So, um, and I'm sure you can do that in Google too, but I don't know how to do that. But you want, but that, you know, that's marketing information, external, like getting in touch with people. I'm talking about like what you want to download is more like your metrics, your data, people on pages, like all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's, I would say is one, I'd say number two is, and this requires probably a little bit more of a unpacking, but I'll do my best to kind of give you the quick of it. People need to partner more. When I left the internet, people overly partnered to the point that it was incestuous. And now people have like become islands and there's a place in between, especially in places where things are challenging and will probably become more challenging. What I mean is that like one of the things that we do at Agora is like if we have a campaign that where we need to be, let's say we need to, I'm just making up numbers here. I just want to make it easy. Let's say we need, for some reason, we can only pay up to $2 for these leads, whatever it is. Okay. And right now the leads are coming in at $3. So we're losing money. We can't do this campaign. Um, a lot of times we will find a partner to go in on with us for those leads. Like we'll do a co-reg with another company or another two companies. So all of a sudden, like we've taken a non-winning ad and turned it into a performing ad that will work well for us because we're doing a co-reg. We're having so instead of me, if it's if I was in this situation, instead of me and some other business both paying Google or both paying Facebook, we can pay them once, and we can you know share the we can share the email because it can go in you know you can go to two lists, and um, and our lead cost just went in half. So you know there's a lot that can be done on that level. But I do, like I wrote, one of, one of the free reports I wrote was called The Missing Chapter, and that was the last of the manifesto series. And in that report, I talked about how, why the direct response companies in the US got so big, whereas in the rest of the world, they stayed small. And the main reason was that in the US, companies rented their lists. 
And so when a company got a customer, that customer was ultimately added to the entire market, not just that business. So that when that business went out of business, the market still had the customer as opposed to all those customers being like birthed and then died in that business. And so in the US, because that happened for years and years and years, the companies got bigger and bigger and bigger, even though some companies came and went, the market got bigger, right? So for in order for that to happen, the people that are contributing all have to be like bringing in new blood, right? Um, so th I think that businesses should do that. I think they should have a few other companies that are either complementary products, what have you, even potentially, you know, competitors that you get along with to subsidize advertising costs, but to look for partnering in ways that don't have everybody giving money to the platforms, right? Um, so there's lots of partnering that can be done both on the front side, on the acquisition side, and also on the lifetime value, you know, customer monetization side as well. So there's definitely that. Um, the next thing I would say is that, and this might, this is also a little bit obvious, but I think critical, um, is that you really should do the best job you can once you get to a certain size um, to move, move your prospects and customers from one platform to another platform. So you have as many ways as possible of being able to uh, contact them. So that means, you know, getting them to subscribe to your YouTube channel, if you have one, if you don't put a few videos and still try and get them to subscribe, right? Getting them to like your page on Facebook, getting their email address, getting their SMS, getting their physical address, um, as getting, you know, getting them to follow you on Twitter or TikTok now. Yeah, it's just, or Instagram. The, but getting people to move from platform to platform so that you have a higher and higher probability never not being able to get in touch with that person again. And that happens. So those would be some of the easier ones. Um, there are obviously a lot more advanced ones um, and we'll be breaking a lot I'm of them sure. down. I'm sure you're going to share a lot. Right. And um, you know, we're not leading to some course here of how to thrive in 2020 or anything like that. Um, so uh, we're going to be delivering a lot of really good solid information people can use for sure. That's fantastic. So that URL again is CSIB2020.com and the code is unstoppable. That's correct. Perfect. Um, we will get that linked up in the show notes. Rich, we, this is fascinating. I, you know, if you had the time, I could sit here and talk with you about it for, uh, for the rest of the afternoon, but I know you've got a busy I got schedule. I got a busy schedule, but I'd love to come back sometime if you want. I'd love to come back. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. We'd love to have you back. Um, so folks go check that out. CSIB2020.com. The code is unstoppable and uh, Rich Sheffern. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. This episode of the unstoppable CEO podcast is sponsored by the unstoppable agency. That is the agency part of our business where we work with professional service firms and create a done for you marketing program. And what that looks like is we actually sit down with you. We come together and define your ideal client with you. We go build a list of those people and then we begin reaching out to them on your behalf to book them as guests on your podcast. We call it podcast prospecting and it's a fantastic way to connect with potential clients and influencers that can refer you. 
and it's end-to-end -end a done-for-you system. And so if that's something that you think might be the right fit for your business, go to our website, go to unstoppableceo.net. You can uh, find there on the homepage a link to a video presentation that explains how it all works. And if you'd like, let's get together and have a quick 20-minute conversation and see if we're a fit. Again, that's at unstoppableceo.net. Right on the homepage, look for a link to the video that explains how it all works.